0: Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse and manager of nursing education for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Thank you for joining us in this special edition of HPNA's Podcast Corner Healing Through COVID Finding Resilience in Times of Crisis. Our guest today is Dr. Carla Cheatham, a national subject matter expert on developing emotional competencies, resilience, as well as an expert in lost grief and bereavement. Carla holds her MA in psychology. She's certified in trauma counseling, has a PhD, as well as her master's in divinity. After serving in counseling treatment and higher education, Carla worked for a decade as a hospice chaplain and improvement coordinator. She's the author of two nationally recognized books, Hospice Whispers: Stories of Life, and a second book, Sharing Our Stories: A Hospice Whispers Grief Support Workbook. Her next book on resilience, grief, and the art of presence with suffering is planned to be published in 2020 or 2021. Thank you Carla and welcome to HPNAs
1: Podcast corner. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being with all of you. Nurses are near and dear to my heart, as are all members of the interprofessional teams. So, yeah, I came into this field kind of by accident. I started off in psychosocial services. My first master's was in psychology, and I was trained and worked as a therapist and did trauma therapy, worked in treatment centers, and worked with persons with developmental delays, and then uh, did my PhD in health and kinesiology. And, and, um, and then wound up uh, doing more work, got the chance to get the Masters of Divinity. Uh, so taught at the, uh, did, was in academia, taught and researched in the areas of religion and health or spirituality and health and where the two interplay with each other and how the psychology of uh, the way we think about things and the traumas we experience can impact us for good or for ill, and how everything can work together. The whole mind-body experience was not new to me when I finally made my way to hospice and palliative care, but I searched faith communities for a while and then uh, was director of an interfaith worker justice nonprofit. So I had quite a varied background and was really grateful for that. But then one day a friend called up and said, hey, we need some folks to do some PRN work in hospice. Do you want to come play? I said, ah, yeah, sure. I'll come do some work on the side. I'll come play on the side with you guys. What do you What do you need? I said, well, we need some interfaith chaplains. We need some uh, grief counselors. Some some bereavement counselors. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll come play. Famous last words. I got sucked into the dark side. I heard y'all had cookies, and and I stayed. So, hospice and palliative care became my profession for about ten years. But about ten years ago, found out, folks needed a training in the so-called soft skills, but about which there's a lot of hard science behind it. And it also significantly impacts incomes and ourselves. So I now teach the emotional competencies of professional caregiving uh, to teams and leaders, bedside staff, as well as to family caregivers about how we care well for ourselves and show up well for ourselves. We can show up well for others. I also get to do some work in ethics. I'm, I still chair the Ethics Advisory Council for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, and I uh, do work with their trauma-informed end-of-life care uh, task force, workforce, mm-hmm. and still. And then I teach for the University of Maryland. I helped design some of the courses for their Master's of Science in Palliative Care with that rock star PharmD, Lynn McPherson. That's somebody Absolutely absolutely yeah so I get to do a lot of fun things excuse me amazing folks but it's all comes around this area of resilience and emotional intelligence and how we care for ourselves during hella hard times like we're facing right now in particular so
0: that that's a beautiful segue into to where we are right now Carla and from your perspective as a trainer and a consultant and a professor and Leader in ethics, I noticed that you were on the Hastings Ethics Report that came out for the COVID nineteen. Thank you for your insight. We absolutely valued that that piece and listed it on our resources as well for COVID. So, what are you seeing and um, hearing from healthcare workers across the country about what they're experiencing right now?
1: Yeah, I'm hearing a tremendous amount of first the personal heartache and struggle that everyone's facing. We're all facing our own primary trauma, worried about our own safety, the safety of the people that we love, the family members perhaps we're taking care of or feel responsible for. That's one piece. I spoke with a colleague just the other day who, in the midst of a professional phone call, talking about how to take care of family caregivers got choked up. And when I checked in about that, he acknowledged that he had not seen his mom in the last eight weeks because she was locked down in a facility, skilled nursing facility and he could not see her and get to her and had a hard time communicating with her even through screens and the concern, the fear, the sadness. So there's the primary trauma that we're facing. And then there's the secondary trauma of seeing those around us that we care about and the persons for whom we care and whom we seek to serve, the patients and families and residents that we care for that we're watching them go through their own fear and anxiety. So there's certainly primary trauma and secondary or vicarious trauma. Then there's you know, the burnout that we already experience with workplace struggles, um, workplace conditions that for good or for ill can impact us in certain ways, whether we feel more or less supported, more or less valued or depersonalized. and. I'm seeing some strain there. Most organizations are doing a good job of pulling together well, and leaders are desperate to care well for their teams while their teams go out and do this hard and now frightening work. I am seeing some places where leadership has struggled to get the support that they need together for their teams and teams that have had little to no guidance or inconsistent guidance. Uh, or being pushed to go out and continue to make visits even when it is not uh, apparently safe or ethical or there's not adequate uh, PPE to protect them. So I'm seeing a mixture, but largely leadership's doing well, but that's not always the case because many, many of us got caught flat-footed of not knowing how to lead teams during this time and, and did not have adequate protocol ready for something like this. Um, I'm seeing a lot of moral distress of team members who I know how to do this work. I know how to be a good nurse, social worker, chaplain, CNA, et cetera, but I'm constrained from being able to do it because I can't get in to see them, or they're not letting us in to see them, or they're refusing visits because they're afraid. There's so many mixtures. And there's also, and you and I, I talked about this, Julie, that there are those um, members, even in your organization, who are struggling with, and we, you know, you and I've gone round and around about, do we call it survivor's guilt? What do we call it? But I've seen as well, professionals who say, I'm in academia, I haven't been at the bedside in years, or I am in leadership, I'm not at the bedside, I haven't been at the bedside in a long time. And or they're retired or they've moved on to a different job for some reason, but they're not there in the trenches like their colleagues at the bedside facing so much of the worst of this in some ways. And there's this feeling of angst and guilt, relief at not being at the bedside and then guilt for feeling relieved about not being at the the bedside. So tumble of emotions. There's also that moral injury of colleagues and students of mine and clients of mine that I consult with who are having to be the ones who stand there and say, I'm sorry, no, you don't get to come see your mom. And being the ones who hold that space and hold those boundaries. It's a really quick way to go from being seen as an angel or a hero and getting applauded to getting spit on and getting your tire slashed. So um, and a lot of struggle that we're facing, the moral injury that comes from, I know what's right, but then in a pandemic, all the ethical guidelines we typically follow are out the window because instead of the needs of the patient being primary, it now needs to become the needs of the greater good being primary that sometimes subverts what we normally would do for the client. So um, a huge jumble of emotions, struggles, uh, fears, anger, frustration, guilt, uh, just a big swirl that folks are dealing with right now, as well as stories where teams are pulling together. And there's this very strong sense of humility of how beautifully they are being supported in some cases and how well teams are pulling together and working together to provide support to each other and say, all right, we're going to do this. We don't know how, but we're going to figure this out and we're going to do this and we're going to be vulnerable with each other and good to each other while mm-hmm. we do so, then that's also been incredibly powerful when we've been able to find our best selves in the midst of this and show up well.
0: You know, I read a, a really beautiful quote the other day for some planning that we were working on, and it was pertaining to, you know, heroes on the front lines. And what was written was we're not heroes on the front lines for going, for doing our job and caring for our patients. We're heroes on the front line because we're doing it without the proper equipment. Yeah. And it it really truly framed it to where we've all experienced some level of being in a, you know, a dangerous situation to ourselves, to our patients, to our family members, even if it's a bad area of town or if it's a, you know, a crisis back in in looking at the HIV and the AIDS crisis and the, the framing of this of being don't consider us a hero because we're, we're doing what we're, we're, we want to do and what our job is, you know, it's the, the conflict for us is that we don't have the resources to do it. And it really sent that message home to me, Carla, about, you know, the, the, the situation that we have going on and looking through your lens as someone who works in the areas of burnout or moral distress, and especially with your background in trauma and in grief, what are you noticing in staff and in teams? Mm-hmm. Right
1: now? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of. Folks acknowledging exactly how traumatic this is. I think there's a greater, you know, there's something about things that we struggle with, the shame and the stigma around being honest about our own tender areas and our own brokenness that we bring to us, we bring with us as humans into any situation. It can be really hard to admit that. And yet, suddenly, when everyone else is also struggling, You get that sense of, you mean it's not just me? And it can be easier to admit when we're struggling if others are also giving us permission by having the courage to be vulnerable enough to admit, to be brave, and because to be vulnerable requires bravery, courage, to admit that they're struggling. I was talking recently with a group of nurses who uh, one of them said, I'm an old school nurse. And she said she was on the unit sitting around, not sitting around, but having a, a, at least a, a few quiet moments. Um, oh, I said the keyword around nurses, please don't hate me. I did not mean that. I didn't mean to say the keyword, but was having a few moments of calm with colleagues, just uh, I'm taking a quick break before they dove back in. And they were sitting around talking and she said, one of them finally mentioned that this was triggering for them because they had grown up in an alcoholic family. And as these 17 nurses sitting around, you're not having a few minutes to chat before, after meeting and getting back on the floor, by the time they were done, all 17, that was it, they were in a unit meeting, all 17 nurses on that floor had come from an alcoholic family background. Oh my. Yeah. And they went, well, that's not a coincidence. Um, Research shows that people who have their own brokenness in their family history tend to be the ones who become the hero child. And of course we do. Many, like just like men and women who often who go into law enforcement and legal fields often come from their own history of having been broken and now feel a need to be drawn to stand up for those who are vulnerable and defenseless and need to be protected from folks who might do them harm. We come because we often were trained and taught or given the role of being the one who was the hero caretaker child. And that may not fit for you and for for others of you listening, but for many of us, it does. The trick is to use those skills as our superhero superhero human strengths or superhuman hero strengths and rather than letting them become our Achilles heel. So I'm, I'm seeing people who are really getting it that on the one hand, yes, this is just what we do. And we're really good at it. On the other hand, there are other things that we also do in healthcare. since disproportionately, those of us who are drawn to this have more of our own history of trauma, perhaps than the average bear. The research shows approximately two thirds of the population has at least one adverse childhood experience in their background. If you're familiar with the ACEs study out of Southern California years ago in the 90s, adverse childhood experiences. If not, you can Google Google ACEs too high. But that's where we started really talking about trauma-informed care and raising awareness around this idea that trauma is prevalent. So the number of persons who've experienced trauma is significant and then as we age, we just have more time to pick up more trauma and more baggage. And so the issue is not whether or not we have trauma in our background. The issue is how well have we had an opportunity to heal it and where might it be coming out in a way that hurts us while we're trying to care for others? Because how many caregivers do you know that are really, really good? How many of us do we know that are really, really good at taking care of everybody else? But absolutely suck at taking care of our own selves. Right. We do everyone else. And that's what that's what we often have gotten trained to do. And so I hate to use a revive a term from the 80s and 90s that got so overused, but it fits this codependence of I'm gonna take care of you so that you will like me and I can feel good about myself, which isn't necessarily a bad thing until it is, and it becomes a hard thing when. We experience a new situation of stress, turmoil, or trauma. We experience challenges in the workplace. We experience a leader that may lead with a more dictatorial or authoritative style that resembles something that came from childhood. Or when we people-please to the point where we don't set boundaries, or where we over-function and are an overachiever enough until we run ourselves ragged and we don't have anything left to give, or when because we aren't taking care of ourselves in constructive ways, we turn to destructive ways of trying to numb out and tend to and care for our emotions. So I'm seeing a lot of caregivers admitting that this is bringing up a lot of their old stuff. And it's an opportunity then for us to tend to that old stuff so that we can use it as some of our greatest strengths rather than allowing them to run amok and be the weaknesses that take us out so as as hard as this time is i think we actually have a tremendous opportunity right now so carly
0: given all that you've just shared and putting that in a in a perspective of you know how this applies to to me as a nurse or to you as a chaplain or to our listeners that are trying to wrap their heads around what can I do so given all of this what are you teaching professionals is the answer to best take care of themselves during this time of
1: crisis yeah honestly and it's a great question it's honestly the the information that um we is really very much in our wheelhouse it comes down to the neurobiology of what happens in our brains, physically what happens in our brains, what happens in the neurochemistry in our bodies, how our minds translate and interpret the signals that come in through the amygdala and filter through the hippocampus and, and uh, really will stimulate our, our threat arousal system, our threat response system, and the sympathetic nervous system. All this stuff is in our wheelhouse. We know this stuff but there's new information that many don't know that has to do with the fact that our sympathetic nervous system does a really good job of trying to go into fight, flight, freeze. We've also added fawn. I'm going to people please and fawn all over someone. So they will be nice to me Um, or, or get small and be polite because you know, I'm a Southerner. We know how to be polite, bless your heart. Um, So I'm teaching about the neuroscience of what it means to practice our own resilience and our own emotional intelligence in a way that really keeps us more aware so that we're making decisions based on the threat uh, information that's coming in to our bodies so that we respond from our prefrontal cortex from a more reasoned, intentional, thoughtful, mindful, grounded way rather than letting our lizard brain run amok with us. Um, our, our bodies do a really good job of, that, of the threat arousal system and the sympathetic nervous system getting on guard to really protect us, to fight flight or freeze. We don't do as well, especially as we've gotten more ref, refined and constrained and uh, we need to be, I don't know, have it all together in our Western culture. We don't do as well in getting that energy out of our bodies. Our parasympathetic nervous system doesn't do as good of a job of calming us down as the sympathetic does of charging us up. So there are things that we have learned over the years in neuroscience that have helped us get more clear about things that we can do physiologically to help our parasympathetic nervous system to reset that relaxation response. And so we are working on getting that information into practical terms. So here's, here's what all that really means. The resilience that I speak of in practical terms is the six components I most teach about resilience are this. It's about the stories that we tell ourselves, how we make sense out of what's happening. Do we tell a story that the universe is out to get us, that nobody loves us, that, that uh, this is always going to be this way, it's never going to change? Or do we say, you know what? This isn't all of our lives. There are people who love us. We'll always have our backs. This isn't personal about me. This is just life being lifey. There are, uh, this will change in time. This won't always be like this. And there, and I'm not helpless. I may be helpless to change circumstances, but I'm not powerless. I may be powerless to change these circumstances, but I'm not helpless to take action on my own behalf. I can view this as an opportunity and look for the gifts rather than see it as a threat. So it's about perceptions and meaning making. It is about uh, a sense of locus of control. Do I internalize my locus of control and focus on the things I can change? Or do I give away my power to everyone else and blame everyone else so that I don't take any responsibility for finding what I can do to tend to myself, regardless of what the circumstances are outside of me. It's about community and support and knowing that there are people who, again, will always have my back and will always be there for me. It's about being very adaptive and creative and flexible and finding new solutions, which requires that we feel safe to do so. Creativity requires risk. We have to know that if we're going to be creative and adaptive in our coping, that if it goes amok, that people around us will catch us if we fall or won't shame or judge us. So having a culture of safety within a team is huge. That goes back to that sense of having then a community and connection and knowing that people are always there with us. It's about practicing good self-care and boundaries and being mindful of what we're taking in. So right now, especially I'm encouraging a lot of titrating the dosage of what you allow in, of media, social media, because if we feed the fears, that's what will grow. Um, And not saying ignore it, be aware, but be mindful that we don't just constantly feed our brains with, with the things that are just going to keep us amped up without also going, all right, now what can I do about these things that's constructive? And then finally, it's about gratitude and hope. And not, we think of gratitude and hope as feelings and they're not. I can feel grateful. I can feel hopeful. But they are practices that I must engage in in order to find that gratitude and so i have to practice gratitude to feel grateful i have to work on consciously building hope in order to feel hopeful so we're teaching some of those basic techniques about um, gratitude lists and monitoring the stories in our head and truly breathing and grounding Um, a lot of practical techniques of things that we can do that don't take extra time but that mean that we're more mindfully engaging and the things that we're already doing, like we're washing our hands more than we ever have in healthcare. So instead of singing happy birthday for 20 seconds, how about we say a mantra or a prayer? Let's take that time to find our feet and soften our bellies so that we're not, you know, that we sucked in our gut from stress or trying to hide our muffin top. because if we're not staying at home and COVID-19 has hit our waistline, is like the freshman 15 to 15 pounds, we've gained the COVID-19 pounds, then we, if we're we not at home, we can't probably be wearing our uh, sweatpants like we do when we're on the couch, eating cookie dough right out of the tube, but binge watching Tiger King. But um, you know, are we trying to suck in our muffin top? Where are our shoulders in relationship to our earlobes? Have we peed recently? Have we had anything to drink recently? Have we not had anything to drink because we don't feel like we have time to stop and pee? You know, just checking in and getting in with our bodies. So washing our hands more mindfully, walking through a doorway, and instead of just rushing through the door, you know, many of us get taught that moment of pause with our our hand on the doorknob, the pausing before we enter a patient interaction or a meeting or a family meeting. But when we do pause and breathe for just a second to let us catch up with ourselves. Walking through that doorway and imagine there's a waterfall coming down through that doorway, washing all the stress of the energy of the day off of us. so that we walk into that interaction clean. And then when we leave that interaction, hand that person back over to other hands so that we're not carrying them with us all day long and worrying about them all day long. We hand them back into their own hands, the hands of their families, the other ship. Do you trust your colleagues or not? into the hands of a deity, the universe, whatever works for you, but hand them back over. Do your due diligence, do documentation, do continuity of care, but, um, but hand them over so that when you walk through that, water, that waterfall or that doorway, out of that care interaction, you're letting the stress of that interaction wash over you so that all throughout the day, you're constantly clearing your stressors and not picking them up, so by the end of the day, you've got the entire caseload on your shoulders. But just doing things more mindfully, which means we have to get ourselves calm enough and be more aware of what stories our brains are telling us, our minds are telling us based on the input from our brains, so that we're really coming from a mindful, engaged, thoughtful, integrated place so that our prefrontal cortex can be online and our prefrontal cortex can be the one that gives us enough pause to make wise decisions and to respond rather than our lizard brains freaking the heck out and having us just react with knee jerk reactions. So we're teaching a lot of those techniques to try to help people get through this time that don't take a lot of extra time, but just use the time that we're already spending in more mindful, emotionally intelligent ways. Carla, listening to you
0: say this, I had um, a question asked of me uh, yesterday morning, and it was a very simple question of, you know, Julie, how are you doing? And my Beirut response is always, I'm fine, how are you? It's that Southern again, that Southern upbringing, don't share your burden, you know. And the person that asked me was somebody that I felt extremely safe with. And, and we were, you know, on a Zoom call and I just looked at her and there was just one tear that dropped down my cheek because I realized that I can't really tell you that I'm fine. At this moment in time, I'm not, but I also feel like it's safe enough to be able to tell you that I'm doing okay. And so you look at what I'm here or what I'm listening to you say is that we have to be reflective of what our internal feelings are and then find that safe place and be with and, and to be able to know that it's safe to truly say, you know what? I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And and this just has helped to kind of reinforce to me listening to what you're saying that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. And thank you, Carla, for bringing that to mind. I mean, it just, it's okay to not be okay right now. Let's
1: yeah. just, we can get there, you yeah. know. We have to give each other permission to be human. You know, the, the superhero capes, yes, we're grateful for that. And they the, the strings of those capes strangle us. Halos and angel wings get, heavy. We can't, we get to be human. We have to be human. I talk, we talk about self-care as some fuzzy woo-woo concept or, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Self-care is a good idea. And then when I stop the room and I'll ask, when's the last time you did self-care and what did you do? I suddenly get the deer in the headlights and crickets because we know it's a good idea. We just don't freaking do it. And we say it's the barriers of time or money or energy that get in the way. And I think that's partly true. I think the bigger issue is there's a large segment of us that don't believe that we're worth it. We don't believe that we're worth taking time away from over-functioning caring for others to care for ourselves. And so when we communicate to someone else, no, I'm not really, I'm okay and I'm not okay. This is hard, this is scary. When we have the courage To find safe places to do that, it gives them permission to also be that honest and that vulnerable and to feel like there are people who will see us and hear us and not shame us or judge us and let us be human and take off the capes, the halos, the the wings and just be human. Once we get that affirmation that we're worth caring for ourselves, that can make all the difference in the world. You're right. Even more so. I think we have to really accept that we are worth doing our own self care, which means we get to admit that we need it. How often do we not want to admit that we need it? Nope. Nope. Like you said, I'm fine. But sometimes if it helps people, I'll say, okay, I'm going to tap into our codependence just a little bit for good mm-hmm. rather than for ill. If you can't do it for yourself, then do self-care for the people that you're caring for. And they'll go, what? I'm like, look, self-care isn't just a fuzzy woo good idea. It is our greatest clinical competence. You can't extend more compassion to others than you're extending to yourself. Not for very long and not in healthy ways. We just get really toxic. We can't care better for them than we care. If I can't hear you, hear myself, and be with me in my own struggles and discomfort, how can I ever really hear and be with yours for any length of time? I can have all the best clinical tools in the toolbox. I can have the best protocol, the best mnemonics. I, I can have the best technical clinical skills in my tool belt. But at the end of the day, if I'm not grounded and centered and healthy enough to wield those tools well, then I'll be ineffective at least and dangerous at worst. And none of us got into skill to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the best thing we can do for the patients and families we're looking to care for or the teams that we're leading or caring for is to do our own care first, so that we show up embodying and modeling what we're teaching of them, which is to treat this like a marathon, not a sprint, you know, to take care of themselves. We, we show up telling them to do good self-care while we're swirling in a big old hot mess. And we've got to find a different way to model the very resilience we're wanting them to practice. We can be the best teachers of it by the way we show up, not by what we say. We can't do this, do as I say, not as I do. We have to, it's our greatest clinical competence to do our own self-care first. So Carla, what are some of the techniques that you
0: recommend folks incorporate
1: Mm.
0: in their daily practice to develop a more resilient and emotionally intelligent mindset?
1: Yeah, it does start with taking moments of pause. It does start as much as anything with the breath. So that sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system issue that I was talking about earlier, we learned more from 1997 until 2000, we learned more in the areas of neuroscience than we had ever learned in hundreds of years before. And since then in the last 20 years, we've, again, we've come even further leaps and bounds. One of the things we've started learning more about is the polyvagal system and the vagal nerve. So the vagal nerve and vagal tone and the of that. So that nerve that runs from brain to digestion, like research is starting to show that we think that the serotonin reuptake from SSRIs happens in the brain. We're finding out that actually it doesn't happen all in the brain. There actually are receptors where a serotonin reuptake is happening around the digestive system, around the vagal nerve. And so the vagus nerve is what is a huge component of the parasympathetic relaxation response reset. So the research shows that you can actually stimulate that nerve and stimulate that relaxation response. After the threat comes up, you can bring the threat response back down by inhaling more quickly than you exhale. So the four, seven, eight breathing technique is actually science. You breathe in for four. So a quick inhale, hold it for a count of seven and then out for a count of eight. You can do two or three of those while sitting on the toilet or at a stoplight. You can do those while writing notes. You can do that you know, as a team before a meeting. Um, so teaching some of those breathing techniques just to do a few of those. I know some nurses who, I, I, I worked with Children's National Hospital in DC. I did, I led Grand Rounds there a few years ago and they said, talk to us about, it was on resilience. And they said, talk to us about what it would look like to instill resilience throughout the whole children's national healthcare system. And I said, let's do a pilot. And so we've started this, did a pilot, collected data, and are using that to get more grant money to do more pilots, but we're teaching resilience and mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's called the Mindful Mentor Program. And in that program, it's becoming such a part as we have cohort after cohort go through this training. There were two nurses in cardiology that paused outside of a room before going into a complex care scenario to, they just stood together and breathed for 20 seconds doing one of the techniques that we had taught them doing it together so they had connection because one was just one was passing by and uh, the other saw her and said can you stop and breathe with me for a second before i go into this room because i'm not grounded and i'm not ready yet yeah sure i got 20 seconds so they stood and they breathed for that 20 seconds using one of the like the, the 478 technique and then finally okay Thank you. And then she went in 20 seconds. And she went, cool. Glad to help. And the other nurse kept on walking down the hallway. Um, it doesn't take much. I teach gratitude lists. So again, um, not just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gratitude list. I'm grateful for this. I'm great, but really intentional gratitude lists, the research out of Duke with the Duke three good things is they found that because our brains are hardwired to look for the negative, We have to train our brains to also look for the positive. And in healthcare, we're always looking for the negative. Diagnose, diagnose, what's wrong, what needs to be fixed. So we have to teach the brains to also see what's positive. So the Duke Three Good Things study found that if uh, you can significantly reduce rates of burnout and increase rates of well-being, if you spend for 14 days within 30 minutes before you fall asleep, write down in a journal beside your bed every night, three good things that happened that day. But here's the most important component. Write down what your part was in those three good things happening. So we honor and we name the good that we do and the good that we're part of. We retrain our brains with gratitude lists. Oh boy, in a treatment center where I used to work, we used to say, because we typically... He'd say, gal, when I most need to practice gratitude is when I feel the most pissy. So I found I just have to get myself to go through the alphabet because I don't really feel grateful in that moment. So he goes to the alphabet. All right, fine. A, all right, apples. B, bananas. C, okay, I better not keep just doing fruits and vegetables. How about cats? D, well, okay, my dogs are kind of cool. E, and by the time you get to, you know, windows, Xanax, yellow, and zippers, you know, your neurochemistry has literally, the research shows you've literally changed your brain and literally changed the neuroendocrine response in your body to counteract the stress response. So you can do that as a team. All right, guys, ABCs of gratitude. What are we grateful for that starts with A, B. And you laugh together, you talk together, and you retrain the brain to not just always look for the negative, but to be looking for where the positive exists. It's not, to, it's not to ignore the negative. It's not that the negative doesn't exist. It's that the research shows if we just go out and have a gripe session after work with a friend over a beer and just right, 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 right. Uh, we may feel better in the moment, but it actually hurts us in the long run because we've rehearsed the negative story without pausing afterwards and saying now, given that this is my experience of what's happening? What's the, other, what's the rest of the What's the the rest of the story? How do I finish the circle? What's the top half of this? What can I do to take action on my own behalf? What's my part in this? I can't change the people and circumstances, but I can change how I respond to them. How can I respond up constructively? Where do I need to set boundaries and ask for what I need? Where do I need to challenge the stories I'm telling myself in my head? Where do I need to look for support? Again, that resilience and locus of control piece. So we teach them to finish the circle, not just see the seemingly bad, but also focus on the seemingly, the, the positive and the good so that, that both and, that's about that emotional tel- intelligence is both and. We don't get stuck in one, tra- one story. Trauma response is when, one half, when uh, a trauma story gets locked down in one half of our brain and the two halves of the hemispheres of the brain don't integrate and process the story, it gets locked down in one side, and that's where we get trauma. And so if you can get two sides of the brain talking to each other by seeing, yeah, the seemingly bad, but here's also the good, so that it all gets to be true. It's not being Pollyannish and pretending that, nope, nope, everything's fine. It's about being in reality and not ignoring that the good is there too.
0: So you talk about hope and meaning making seeing things as an opportunity which you were just referencing here three good things that thinks that's a great great thing um, seeing things as an opportunity rather than a threat yeah. so how do you carla personally apply this to our current circumstances that we have going on with this pandemic right now it's about what
1: you're doing early on, we started hearing so much about what we couldn't do. I was struggling with all the things that I couldn't do. Um, I'm one of those who overnight, all of my speaking gigs and all of my income for about the next seven or eight months went away um, on March 11th when everything started shutting down because I travel the country and I get a bunch of healthcare workers in the room in hospitals or hospice or palliative care programs. And I and I, or a bunch of social workers or whomever, and I train them, and that's not what we're able to do right now, but the focus, I I gave myself, you know, I gave myself a few days to grieve, I gave myself a few days to panic and freak out, gave myself some time to binge watch Netflix and chill and just zone out until I could just kind of get calm enough to think more clearly again, and then I said, after giving myself space to do that, because we need to grieve the losses, we need space to grieve, and space to be afraid and acknowledge it. And then there came a point when I'm like, okay, enough's enough. Now what, what are you going to do? What action can you take on your own behalf? And so I started looking for where are the gifts and started challenging others to not focus so much on what we can't do that we ignore what we can. So I can't go see my elder father and his wife because of their health, health difficulties. Um, it would not be wise, kind, fair, ethical, good, smart anything. So I can't go see them right now. But what I can do is I can teach my 79-year-old father how to use Zoom. And I'm interviewing him and his wife on Zoom sessions. And I'm hearing their stories of their life, of childhood, and I'm recording them. And they'll be put in an online platform where my uh, my niece and nephew, and the kids on both sides of the family and the grandkids and the great grands can listen to them and hear them i can 't go to the pub and kick back and play forty two dominoes and spades with my friends and talk trash and both give each other a hard time, irritate each other like a bunch of siblings and get snarky with each other. make up, give each other room and, and you know and give each other grace and our idiosyncratic credits of oh yeah that 's just you know him being him. And play games and have a beer and relax and just, you know, and also in the midst of all that, have stories about, yeah, this whole thing is giving, is making it hard for me to, I'm really wishing my wife, who died three years ago, were here right now, like one friend was sharing. We can't do that in person at the pub. So what I can do is we've been playing games online together and pulling up online chat rooms like Zoom so that we can still now have a beer, talk trash, play games and in the midst of all of that, laugh and tease, that's when people are sharing, I wish my wife were here. Being mm-hmm. socially being in quarantine alone is hard. And so we're really connecting that way. So, you know, what are the things that we can do? That's what I'm getting to focus on. I and in terms of meaning making and hope, I'm finding hope in the ways and trusting that we're gonna find our best selves in this. I find hope that there are conversations about hospice and palliative care that are happening right now that haven't been had before. I saw an article in HuffPo uh, from the Canada online version that my co-instructor sent me from Toronto and the healthcare system there that it's asking, is the COVID pandemic gonna finally get us, push us to talk about palliative care? And it is, we're talking about it. This could transform the way we do medicine. There, this could transform so much if enough of us were intentionally focused on what are the lessons we've learned from this and what does this tell us about how we need and want to do things differently and better in the future. And that's what resilience is. Resilience is about not just surviving through challenging times. It's about finding a new way to be so that we come out the other side of it far better than we were before, not just surviving. That's not about living, but really thriving in a new way. So for me, I find meaning out of this that says, and I'm not one who believes that bad or good is caused or prevented by something greater than ourselves. I I think life happens, and I think uh, the the deity I believe in shows up and goes, well, this sucks. (laughs) This is no not what I wanted. How can I bring as much good out of this as possible? And so what is the good we're gonna find out of this? And instead of looking for everybody else to be the good, why don't we start? Because there are enough of us that if we come out of this insisting that medicine and healthcare be done differently, we could make it happen because there's a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them. So I think it can change us all for the better. Not saying that it's gonna be hard, not gonna be hard, But we talk in hospice and grief circles and in palliative care about helping people find post-traumatic growth. Well, that's what we get to prepare for right now. What's the post-traumatic growth we're going to find for ourselves? How are we going to be better and different? And we're the ones that can make it happen.
0: Everything that you shared with us today, I think is going to touch someone that has, has listened to this and how you've helped frame what we can do what is happening you know how that it is up to us to to be able to come together and look for what we can do again i keep coming back to that would you like to offer us any final words of encouragement for our listeners today
1: yeah as to say you know when i talk about what we can do i don't mean to imply that it's easy we're grieving we are traumatized we're freaked out and scared. We're angry. You may be on the side of the fence angry with people who are doing this. You may be on the side of the fence angry with people who aren't doing this. There's a lot. So if you find yourself exhausted, you're not a slacker. If you find yourself not able to learn three new language and clean out your attic during this time of quarantine, or if you're finding you're not doing all these other things, um, don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare your your others to people's Facebook perfect images. Um, but if you find that you're exhausted and not able to do things you'd like to do and not able to focus and process, there is nothing wrong with you. Your brain's using all the resources it can to process through and to deal with this trauma and loss that we're facing. So if you're exhausted, it's because your brain's sucking all the resources out of your body so you feel like you've run a marathon even if you haven't gotten off the couch. We know that's, that's what happens in our brains. So if you're exhausted, if you're struggling, if you're grieving, if you're like, screw you, I can't find things to be positive and happy about. No, I can't think clearly enough to find meaning in this. Please hear me. You're not crazy. You're not broken. You're not emotionally incompetent. And you're not alone. We're having a normal reaction to an abnormal event. So whatever it is you're feeling, easy. Be very, very easy and gentle with yourself. Find safe places to cry. Find safe places to cuss. Find safe places to not be okay and to not have to wear the halo or the cape. And then get clear about the stories that you're telling yourself and see where your stories might not be helping you and see if you can find a story that might be more helpful and more hopeful. We, don't, we, think, in, we think when we are caregivers, we have to give people hope and we don't, we can't, according to the research. Based on the work of C.R. Snyder, we know that hope isn't, again, as I said earlier, it's not a feeling, it's a practice. And so, hope is, we can't give people hope because they have to build it and hope in themselves. We might give them hope in greater humanity by being the good and they go, wow, that's cool, there's good out there. That's one thing, but building hope in ourselves is when we face challenging circumstances. We have people around us who believe in our ability to find our way through. And then once we have found our way through that challenging time, we now have built hope that the next time we face a challenge, we have greater hope, confidence, if you will, that we can make it through because we already have. And we've got the lived experience to prove it. So we don't need to give anyone hope, but we show up in the center with them and we say, we believe in your ability to find your way through. And while you do, you don't have to be alone. So if nothing else, let me be the person that says to you, you're gonna be okay. Darty is okay. Your heart just doesn't know it yet. But I believe in your ability to find our way through, to find your way through. And while you do, you don't have to be alone. We're with you. We see you, we hear you, and we know that you're amazing. And we'll get through this. Won't be all puppies and ponies, but we'll get through it. But be easy with yourself and find people around you who can also be easy with you. And then once you've really given yourself that space, then it's time to pull out the coach voice and say, all right, Cheatham, what are we going to do next? How are we going to take action on our own behalf? And if anybody, if any population in this whole pandemic is going to make it through, healthcare workers, especially nurses and such. Yeah, we got this.
0: Carla, thank you so much for joining us today, and on behalf of all of our listeners here at HPA and Podcast Corner throughout the country and throughout the world, your message of inspiration and hope and resilience is just—we um, thank you. We thank you for sharing that with us, and we we are showing gratitude for 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 everything that you have given.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: For additional resources to address COVID-19, please visit HPNA at AdvancingExpertCare.org and link to our resource page. Thank you again for listening and joining us and for all the work that you're doing out there to keep our patients cared for and be well and be safe.